All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, turn on your device, whatever you're going to use to have access to the text this morning. Look at Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning, and we're going to be around there for the next few weeks. So I want to spend the next few weeks talking about, as you see on the screen right here, temptation. Uh, Temptation is something that we all face. Life is filled with temptation, and I think that you know what I'm talking about. No matter where you're at in life, you know what temptation is, and if you feel like you don't face temptation or you don't struggle with temptation, then like I said in the first service, come see me afterwards because I want to check to see whether or not you're actually a robot or a real human being. So throughout life, from childhood, let's say, children are faced temptation. Do you listen to your parents or do you do something else? Do you tell the truth or do you tell a lie? Uh, do you hit? Do you pinch? Do you scratch or kick or whatever it may be? Or do you keep your hands to yourself? Do you go eat that piece of candy that your parents told you not to, or do you refrain? You can tell where I'm at in life right now as a parent and the temptations that my my children face. But then you move on from childhood and into teenage years, and temptations are similar, but they start to change a little bit. The temptation for teenagers may still be whether or not to tell the truth or lie. For teenagers, it may be whether or not you're going to cheat, copy off someone else, or do your own work. If you play sports or are involved in an extracurricular activity, some days you won't feel like doing it. So do you tell the truth to your coach, or do you lie and say you're injured and you can't practice today? And then there's always the classic temptation for a lot of teenagers is maybe there's a party. Maybe there's some social event going on, and there's going to be things at that party, at that social event that you know you don't need to be involved in. So do you go or do you stay home? We're tempted as children. We're tempted as teenagers. You move on into your adult life, and the temptations are still there. One of the classic temptations for, especially for people who live in bigger cities, is if you're late to work, do you tell your boss the honest truth? I overslept and I was being lazy this morning, that's why I'm late. Or do you make up a lie and say, well, there was traffic or, well, you know, there was a wreck along the way. You know, as adults, we still face these temptations. And you get in a social setting and people are gossiping and, and maybe talking about something you know you shouldn't be involved in. Do you refrain from being a part of that conversation? Do you change the subject or do you just kind of chime in? We have these phones and TVs and so the temptation's always there. Do we look at this image or this video or do we have a little self-control or some parameters to help keep us from that? For me, Something that I've always struggled with is late at night, 9, 10 o'clock at night, uh, when I should be getting ready for bed, I start getting hungry. And I always go in the kitchen, and there's just like that moment of I can see the food, and the food sees me, and I don't know what to do. But I know that if I eat it, I'm going to feel bad about myself and feel lousy the next day, but I'm so hungry. How do you go to sleep when you're hungry? That temptation has always been there for me. No matter what stage of life that you're in, It's filled with temptation. And some of these examples I've used here are just kind of basic, generic temptations. We could get into a lot more details if we wanted to. But life is filled with temptation, and there's not a human being on planet Earth who doesn't struggle with temptation and face the temptation. You've probably all seen some variation of this cartoon sketch where there's a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder. 
There's so many different variations of it. I just kind of grabbed one to give you an example. But the idea behind these cartoon sketches is that this is something that most human beings can relate to. It's like we have competing voices. Like something inside of us telling us you know what the right thing is to do. Do the right thing. Practice self-control. But then there's also this other voice like, you know, it's not that bad. It's not going to hurt anybody. A little indulgence won't hurt anybody or everybody else does this too. And so it's like we, we live internally where we have these competing voices. And I know it's just a cartoon sketch, but there's some reality to it. And as we face temptation, we're always going to have a choice. Free will, human beings, we have the choice on how we decide to respond to temptation. And what I find interesting in my own life and the lives of many others is we know that the way that we respond to temptation could impact our well-being in a very negative way, or it could impact the well-being of someone else. We know that. And yet we still struggle with temptation. But why is that? Why do I struggle with temptation and what to do, knowing that in the long run, whatever it is that I choose to do may have such a negative impact on me, but we still struggle with that? Well, from the beginning, before we get into Luke chapter 4, let me tell you, we're not alone. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. This is from our scripture reading this morning. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The Hebrew writer here is talking about Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest, and Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. But he knows what we're going through. We're not alone. Jesus understands this temptation. And my plan over the next few weeks is to immerse ourselves in the temptation in the wilderness. You've probably read this before, or maybe today you'll be reading it for the first time. There's a guy named Philip Yancey who many years ago wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in this book about Jesus, he has a chapter, and one of the chapters is called The Showdown in the Desert. I like the way he words that. So we traditionally call this the temptation in the wilderness, or we could call it the showdown in the desert, whatever you want to call it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, and Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 13, which is what we're going to focus on today, you have the two parallel accounts. The story of Jesus going out into the wilderness to face the devil, the showdown in the wilderness, the showdown in the desert. Matthew and Luke are pretty much the same, except that if you were looking closely, the second and third temptation are in different orders. Other than that, it's pretty much the same details. And what I want to do today in the next few weeks is just immerse ourselves in this story. Immerse ourselves in this text and see maybe what God may have to say to us through this. Slow down long enough to spend some time in it, and my plan is to look at it from three different perspectives. Today, I want to look at it from an intro, but also the perspective of what do we learn about the devil? What do we learn about the tempter? Next week, we'll get into more specifically these three temptations that we see, and then the week after that, look at the resistance that Jesus gives to Satan and what we can learn about resistance in our own lives. But for, the, for starting today, let's read Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 13, and we'll just take it all in together. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness or in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed him, until an opportune time. Uh, I have read through this account many times in my life. And most recently, probably late spring, early summer, sometime around late May, early June, I felt just kind of internally I was drawn back into this story, into this text. So I went through a period of time for about two weeks where I would just read either Luke 4 or Matthew 4 every night. And each night I would read from a different English translation to see how it hit me differently. And the more I read it and tried to use my imagination and place myself in the story, the more questions I had. And the more questions I had, I realized I have more questions than I have answers. One of the first questions that came to mind was, why does the Spirit lead Jesus to be tempted? If you, we, I know we just read Luke, but if you were to go back and read Matthew, we're told directly the Holy Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. Why does Jesus need to be tempted? What that shows me, and you line that up with Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, is this temptation was real. It was not a pre-programmed outcome. Jesus was really tempted. A few weeks ago, I taught... Uh, the parlor class, the young professionals class on a Sunday morning, August 1st, and I used this text uh, for the subject matter for the class, and I told them, look, I'm preaching on this in a few weeks, so I'm using you as a sounding board. And I asked this question, and David Tapia said something that I thought was interesting, but he said, if Jesus had an invisible wall around him keeping him from sin, that would reduce the power of the cross. Instead, when Jesus goes into the wilderness... The temptation is real. And because Jesus walked away, not giving in to that sin, it gives even more power to the cross because he was sinless. All right, so back to I'm putting my kids to bed. It's living room. It's dark. I'm reading through this. I have questions. That's one question that comes to mind. Why did Jesus need to be tested? Why did he need to be tempted? Obviously, there's a reason. The other question that comes to mind is when did the temptation begin? So I've read through this story many times in my life, and I've always thought, you know, because the first temptation is to turn this stone into bread. He's been fasting for 40 days, so the temptation does not start until day 40, right? 
But then if you read Luke, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 2, Luke says for 40 days he was tempted. So it's not like Satan just showed up on day 40 and just unloaded a bunch of temptation and then left. The entire time Jesus was in the wilderness fasting and praying and being alone with God, he was also being tempted the entire time. Then my mind continues to wander, and then another question I have is, where did the devil come from? Ever think about that? He's just there. It's just all of a sudden the devil is there tempting Jesus, and Matthew and Luke give us no background. It would be nice if they were writing a research paper, if they'd give us a footnote to say, by the way, here's who the devil is, here's why he gets to show up, here's where he was from the beginning, here's how we see him in Job. We get none of that. There's just an assumption there that we have pretty much a good idea of who the devil is from experience, and the devil is just always there. There's an old Rolling Stones song that is about the devil, which sounds weird, but they don't tell you in the lyrics who it's about, and you just kind of have to guess. And the song starts by saying, let me please introduce myself. And few different times in the lyrics, let me please introduce myself. And they say, what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. And then at the end of the song, they reveal that the song has been about the devil. And I thought about that song this week as I was reading through again this text. And I thought, we don't get any introduction. He's just there, right? He's just always there. So Where does the devil come from? Well, he's always there. And then I think, in my mind, in my imagination, how does he show up? How does he present himself to Jesus? Well, there could be a number of of ways that we view this. One is just kind of the the classic view of who the devil is. is something like this, except maybe somebody that's red. Like the devil has a red pitchfork, he has horns, and he has a tail. I tried to find a picture to use of a red devil, but they were all kind of scary, and I didn't want to scare the kids, so I used this picture instead. So in my mind, I'm thinking, is this what it was like for Jesus? He's in the wilderness, and somebody with a pitchfork shows up and starts tempting him. Or, if you've ever seen The Passion of Christ, a movie that came out by Mel Gibson many years ago, you see throughout the movie, the devil is there, and he's tempting Jesus And he shows up periodically, and it's almost like hmm, maybe only Jesus sees him, or maybe only Jesus hears him. And the way that he appears is this kind of shadowy, sinister, creepy-like figure. Almost looks like a human, but maybe a little different. So in my mind, I'm thinking, is that what Satan was like? Just this hood over him, and you can't really see his face, and he's shadowy. Is that what it was like for Jesus in the wilderness? Or could it be that the temptation... And the way Satan presents himself to Jesus was more of a head game, like a voice in his head tempting him and getting him to think these thoughts. I'm not real sure, but I'm just telling you, as I read through it night after night, all these different questions are coming to mind, and I don't have answers for all of them. But what I've come to discover is that the more important question is, what do we learn about the devil? I believe that the Holy Spirit wanted this story in the Gospels. That's why it's there. There's something to learn, not just about Jesus, but about the nature of humanity, about, of, about spiritual warfare and going through this life. Is Not only do we see the temptation Jesus struggled with, but we also see the temptation in our own lives 
And Larry, you kind of talked about this in your communion thoughts this morning. You talked about the enemy and coming into Iraq. That was a very fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that. But I think about you have to know the enemy and how they work. So what do we learn about the devil, the enemy? Well, if you look closely at what we read from Luke chapter 4, in verse 3 and in verse 9, you see this simple little introduction to his sentence. Simple little phrase, if you are the Son of God. Two out of the three temptations start like that. If you are the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. You may not notice that. or Maybe you have noticed that. It's kind of sneaky. I think it's where we get the phrase, you sneaky little devil, because the devil is sneaky, but strategic and subversive. And I think what he's doing is just planting a little seed of doubt in the mind of Jesus with the way that he presents the temptation, if you are the Son of God. Now, in order to fully appreciate Satan's tactic here, you got to go back in order to go forward. So flip back to Luke chapter 3, and I want to read just two verses The baptism of Jesus in Luke 3, verse 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is... Luke's version of Jesus being baptized. The beautiful moment where the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all together as one. But what is really important, what's so significant for Jesus' life and ministry is the voice that he hears from his Father. You are my Son. You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then the way that Luke presents the gospel, if you kept reading, there's a genealogy. You know, Matthew also has a genealogy, but he has it in a different order. And if you look at the way Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus, I won't bore you with all the names, but if you scroll down to verse 38, it says the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What Luke is trying to get us to see as readers is that Jesus was indeed the son of God. He can trace it all the way back through Adam, all the way back to God. And what the Father is trying to get Jesus to see at his baptism and get him to hear and to feel and to know is, Jesus, you are my son. That voice of affirmation. So you go back to Luke chapter 3, you get that, and then you come back to the temptation in the wilderness. and Notice what Satan's doing. If you are the son of God. I think what Satan's doing is just trying to question Jesus' identity and just plant a little seed of doubt in his mind, if you really are the Son of God. He's either getting Jesus to question, am I really the Son of God? Or he's trying to get Jesus to question, if I am the Son of God, what does that actually mean? Jesus is trying to sort that out. He knows it's a path that's going to eventually lead him to the cross, but Satan is trying to just kind of sneak around and get him to rethink all of that. So, back to my question, what do we learn about the devil? If this is what the devil does with Jesus, and the devil's not afraid to go toe-to-toe with the Son of God, what will he do with us? I have to believe somewhere in there that 
the way that the devil works on Jesus might be how he works on us as well. And there's probably a really good chance that if the devil's trying to get Jesus to question and be confused about his own identity, then I bet the devil does it to us as well. The tempter. He gets us to question our own identity. And when I was going off to college many, many years ago, uh, I remember leaving, and I, I was leaving the driveway, and my mom said, remember who you are and whose you are. And then my dad just said, hey, we've enjoyed having you, and he sent me on my way. But, but my mom, she was crying. She said that, and it didn't really register. I didn't, uh, I, well, I shouldn't say I didn't care, but at the time, I was just eager to go to college. But, but that stuck with me. Remember who you are and whose you are. And since that time, I've heard other parents say that. Maybe you said that to your kid as they started school, or maybe that's been said to you. Remember who you are. And what Satan will try to do is what he did with Jesus is try to get you to be confused about that, muddy the waters a little bit, and forget who you really are in Christ. Many years ago, I watched this movie. It took place in Sierra Leone, Africa, and it was based on reality. The movie itself is not a true story. But in Sierra Leone, Africa, and in other places around the world, it's very sad that this happens, but there are rebel armies that will go through villages and basically kidnap young people, take them away from their families, and then brainwash them and force them to become soldiers. They brainwash them and strip them of their identity. So in this movie, there was a father named Solomon, and this is his son, Dia. And Dia was taken by the rebel army, and so the rest of the movie, one of the main plots was the father, Solomon, had a relentless pursuit of his son. And finally, towards the end of the movie, Solomon, for the first time in a long time, comes face to face with his son. And at first you can see it, the son doesn't even recognize his own father. It doesn't even register because he's been so brainwashed to become somebody else. You had this tender moment in this movie scene where the, the father is telling the son, Dia, you are my son. I love you. Your mother loves you. Your sister loves you. You are a good boy. And he repeats that over and over. Dia, you are a good boy. You love going to school. You love doing homework. You know, you love your sister. You love your mom. You are a good boy. I am your dad and I love you. And then you watch the son as he slowly kind of lets his guard down. And it's like the grip of Satan has slowly let go of him. And he embraces his father because he finally remembers who he really is. And I think what Satan's trying to do with Jesus in the wilderness is to get Jesus to think, question, wrestle with, doubt, who am I really, and what does it mean to be the Son of God? And I think that maybe that's what Satan does with us as well. And perhaps, maybe the root of many of the temptations that we're going to face, maybe some that I mentioned at the beginning or, or many others that you could list, that at the root of that, the way that you choose, the way that you choose to respond to temptation will be influenced by your understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you claim to be and you are a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, and we are all children of God, 
Our understanding of who we are, our, our identity, will influence how we respond to temptation. So if you want a practical challenge this morning, because we're, we're going to spend a few more weeks looking at the temptations, get more specific. I want to challenge you to do something, maybe a little weird, maybe it's out of your comfort zone, and, and I want it to be private, just between you and God. And I'll do it too. Get a scratch sheet of paper, get the bulletin where the sermon notes are, or just pull out a note on your phone. And just in one column, write out all the temptations you're currently struggling with. And just be honest. Between you and God. There's no human being that's not going to struggle with temptation. So write out your temptations. What you're currently facing. What you faced in the last year. What you anticipate facing coming up this year. And then in the column beside it, beside each temptation, just write, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a child of God. And then line those temptations up with who you are and see if that can influence your own response and your own decision-making. Last night as I was preparing for this, kind of putting the final touches on this sermon, and, and one of the things I always wrestle with is how do I end the sermon? So I, I thought to myself, okay, we're talking about identity and how Satan tries to confuse that and, and strip us of who we really are, get us to question that. I just wrote down the question, who am I? And here's what came to mind. Here's what I wrote down. I am a sinner. I am. I'm a sinner who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I've taken off in my baptism, took off the old self and put on the new self, but guess what? I still struggle with temptation. I still struggle and I still believe that God forgives me as I forgive others. But then I also wrote down, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone because we have our church family, and I'm not alone because Jesus knows what I'm going through because Jesus also faced temptation. So who are you? Who are you in Christ? And if you've never become a follower of Jesus, today's a good day for you to talk about being baptized into Christ and putting on, t- taking off the old self, putting on the new self in Christ. Let us have that conversation with you. If you know you are in deep with temptation and, and maybe you're really struggling with it right now and you just need some help, well, this is what the church family is all about. We're here to help you. We have a few elders who are here today. I'm available to you. If we can pray for you, help you, or talk to you about baptism or whatever the conversation may be, please come find one of us here in just a moment. Uh, and we're going to invite you to stand back up, Tony back up here, and we're going to continue to sing. Just as I am with